Well, hello, you're in the call room. It's episode 115. It's a lovely, sunny Saturday afternoon here in Melbourne. Uh, we've got a real treat today. While some of our regulars are out enjoying the Melbourne sun, we've been joined live from LA, from Gardner, by Phil McDaniel from the Eureka Brewing Company. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure, mate. What time of day is it over there? And um, how's the weather? We always just like to start off with a couple of little gentle questions like that. Uh, it's 7.30 in the evening. I uh, just got home. I uh, was brewing all day today. Um, the weather is winter, but I mean, it's Los Angeles winter. So it's probably 60 degrees out. We, we had a cold spell come through, down got down into the 40s. But right now it's... I was wearing a T-shirt all day. <laughs> I've got to say, when I was looking you guys up and I did a little sort of, you know, Google street search and a Google map, I just sort of looked where you were situated there and, you know, the the beaches not too far away and the national parks not too far away and Long Beach, where I'd like to go and see Iron Maiden one day, not too far away. It was, um, you've got a beautiful little space there. Yeah, we're right really in the middle of everything. Um and you mentioned the beach. We are fairly close to the beach, and there is a little um, kind of craft beer community. Um, we call that area the South Bay. It's a few beach cities and a few um, cities, just like one city inland. And um, that uh, probably in that little area is 15 um, breweries, really great breweries as well. Yeah, right. I, I must admit, I didn't realize there were that many that that close together are there any others that we might have heard of here in australia um well probably one of the biggest uh south bay breweries is smog city um i know they get um distributed around a little bit internationally um we have one of the biggest cult hype not in a bad way but hype just following breweries that is um named monkish which, yep. is, which is known for their hazy uh, IPAs. And so we're always a little jealous of Monkish with their lines around down the street and around the corner. But it, it's cool to have that his name is Henry, the brewer. It's cool to have Henry in the neighborhood as well. Oh, that's awesome. But tell, can you paint us a little bit of a picture about your brewery and your space just to give people, we've got listeners all around the world, just a bit of an idea about, you know, what it's like if we were to, pull up the car out the front and, and have a look around? So um, Eureka Brewing is fairly young. Um, we are one year old, um, maybe a year and a month old. We uh, started our brewery in the dead center of the pandemic, which is kind of a crazy thing to do. Um, but we had a, a good opportunity on the location and we kind of had to move on it quickly. So we, um, we started, it's a pretty good sized facility for the area. I mean, it's not a large brewery, but we can make a good amount of beer out of there. We have a nice large tasting room as well. Um, we have our own canning line, so we can all of our beers on site. Breweries our size tend to use uh, mobile canners or contract canners, but um, so a nice brewery uh, canning line. Um, not far from the beach. We are like most production breweries in an industrial area. Um, when you get those really nice areas, 
that's where we might put like an offsite tasting room, which we're working on a few of those. All right, we've got um, the scoop early on that then. Normally it takes a few beers in before we start to get the scoops on future plans. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you're you're driving past a few um big warehouses and stuff as you pull in, but um we have a great little tasting room and we enjoy um all of our local customers that come by. Uh, awesome, man. I've got, I've got to ask really early on about the name because in Australia, particularly in Victoria, you know, Eureka is, you know, a really important thing in, in our country's history. But where does the name come from, from your point of view? And why did you choose Eureka? So um, I have a few funny comments about our name. First, the, the origin of the name at the time we thought was great. Um, so the state seal for um, California above it says Eureka and that's kind of connected to the gold rush that happened um, here in California which Eureka means I you know I found it yep. Eureka um, so we thought that was great being um, in California and myself and my other co-owner born and raised in California we wanted to identify with the state so we went with Eureka our um logo that you see on all the cans um that kind of warrior woman looking lady is a roman goddess minerva who is also on the state seal so the california state seal is a eureka on top and it has minerva sitting there um and so we were going for the full-blown california uh theme on our branding the the problem we encountered maybe six months in was that there's a small little town way up hundreds of miles away in Northern California named Eureka. So now <laughs> at every beer festival we go to, like even in Los Angeles, like, wow, you drove all the way down from Eureka. That's crazy. Um, so we've been dealing with that, but we still love the, um, the idea. We, the most common thing I say at a beer festival is, is Eureka the word, not the town. Come on, people. It's like, it's not that hard. But um, so we enjoy the the branding and uh, that's where the name came from. Oh, that's awesome. And as uh, Jen is sitting with me today and she's just saying that how much she loves having a powerful woman on the logo. So it's um it's a really, it's a great, we're going to talk more about can design and things a bit later on, but it's mm -hmm. a certainly striking and very clear from a distance um, what, it, what it is. You touched there on your co-founder um why don't we just sort of you know touch briefly on the story about uh how you and adam first met and um you know it, the story goes a fair way back am i right in saying yeah so if you're asking when we first met that would be in our kindergarten class so <laughs> um we're friends from the same town here a little suburb of los angeles um went through all of our school together um we were big golfers, so we played on the golf team together, um, as well as another kind of group of guys that we're all still good friends with. Um, as we got older, I got into brewing, and um, I've actually been professionally brewing for over 15 years now. And in that time that I was brewing, Adam started his own business, not early on. He was an, he's an electrical engineer, but eventually he started his own engineering company. And he got pretty um, experienced in being a business owner and um, also making a lot of money. <laughs> and I, I learned how to make beer. So 
early on we were we always would um just spitball you know we should start a brewery one of these days um and that's why we started it so abruptly because we were always thinking about it but we had this opportunity pop up to move into a spot right away and um like i said it was in the middle of a pandemic but we just jumped on it so um it was something that we always kind of had in mind and the right things kind of fell in place and we, when we went for it. So now I manage all brewing operations, all day-to-day stuff. And he's, he's our kind of uh, business guidance and our business uh, kind of guru that manages all the, um, fi- him and his team manage all the finances and all the business side of things. Was there a particular night, a particular bar you're at where you finally decided to do things and wake up in the morning to go, oh, I think I might have actually agreed to really do it this time? Was there sort of one of those moments or? (laughs) It was, no, it was a very slow and painful process because I was very happy at my my brewery that I was at before. I was actually an owner in that brewery as well, but not really a founder. Uh, They brought me in as their head brewer and they gave me some ownership. And I built that brewery from the ground up as well and really loved those guys. And it's just down the street, still in the South Bay. I'm still friends with all those guys. I still kind of even help them out a little bit from time to time. But um, I really didn't want to leave. It was painful, but um, it was just a good opportunity you know, for my, for myself, it was a step upwards, you know, becoming a co-founder as opposed to just a, you know, a partial owner or something. So um, I actually told myself at the time, I really don't want to do this, but a year or two years from now, I'll look back and I'll know it's the right decision. And that's kind of what convinced me to just go for it. Um, so it was a slow and painful process, especially for Adam, because the entire time he was just harassing me come on, come on, let's do this, let's do this. So um, that's how it ended up. I want to come back and learn more about your story, about where you've brewed previously and where you, where you learned your trade. But before we, before we get too much further in, we should talk about the first beer that we're having, which is the Bay Crusher, the West Coast IPA. Um, can, you, can you give us a little sort of guided tour of, of this beer? Tell us how it should be looking in the glass, what, what aromas we should be getting. Just imagine we're doing a live, you know, tasting in a bar somewhere. Yeah, so Bay Crusher was our first IPA that we brewed. Um, And I was getting a little kind of on the experimental side when I was putting the recipe together, um, using something just slightly out of the ordinary. I mean, it's not a wild beer. It, It clearly is a West Coast IPA, but I wanted to do something a little outside the box with it. So the malt profile um at least here on the west coast i talk to people and they say what are you talking about that is a dry west coast ipa but here on the west coast this is actually considered on the malty side for an ipa yeah, right so i use some pretty heavy malts in it i use english-based malts um that are known for having more body and more um, malt character to them just because in my experience it makes a more interesting ipa than like a bone dry ipa um, so it's a little maltier. It has English malts. It's not absolutely pale straw. It does have a bit of color to it. Um, and that's why that's due to those malts. 
And then when you get to the hops, I also went a little outside the box with the hops. Um, there's a few uh, hop varieties that aren't super traditional in IPAs. They've, they've been around in IPAs, but they're not your classic West Coast IPA hops. Those hops would be um, one called Sabro that is uh, very unique. Um, when I first had a beer with Sabro, the first thing that hit me in the face was Orange Julius, like that, that smoothie orange drink that you can get. Um, I'm, I seem to be the only one who really gets that. Um, a lot of my guys at the brewery get a ton of coconut out of Sabro. So you get that's, this coconut that's character. The word that most people sort of associate it with it, I think, yeah. Yeah, so like a sweet fruitiness, um, a, a kind of a little bit of coconut, a little woody, um, and just something different than if you're used to drinking IPAs that are just Citra Mosaic most of the time, or Citra Mosaic and Simcoe or something. This is just a little different if you want to change the pace. Um, the other hop varieties are cashmere, which is also one of those borderline hops that sometimes you see in IPAs, but they're not, it's still not a super common hop. And then to give it like a true, um, just make sure people knew they were drinking an IPA, there is a little mosaic, which is your one of the flagship IPA hops. So I, I think malt sweetness complements fruity hops. Um, a lot of West Coast or a lot of IPA brewers try and eliminate sweetness at all costs, but I think a little sweetness, fruits are sweet. So if you have a, a hop variety that has fruity characteristics and you give it a little bit of sweet malt, I think that pairs great. Um, so I, I had an IPA at my previous brewery that was malty as well. That's kind of where I got my, that's kind of where I got my inspiration for this one. And it was, a hit we brewed like 90 percent of our beer was that beer so um i'm going for that malty sweetness to complement the fruity hops as opposed to trying to eliminate all malt so that's that's the flavor profile of this beer can i ask just a bit about west coast ipas in general it's one of those styles you know some people who are newer to craft beers may not know so much about the west coast style and i guess particularly here in australia a few years ago, we saw a few of them going around. We've seen less in the last year or two. So, you know, can you give us a basic sort of history lesson? Yeah, so um, the there's kind of like two rounds of West Coast IPAs. Um, like maybe eight, nine years ago, a West Coast IPA was bone dry and citrusy. So they use hop varieties, primarily Centennial cascade and it was grapefruit citrus a little bit of pine and bone dry and i would say you know stone brewing in san diego which i worked at um earlier in my in my um timeline of brewing um was one of the early first breweries to just make this bone dry beer that all you taste is hops and it was people's it was a lot of people their first encounter with really what hops taste like because before then hops were used for balance um it just kind of balanced the beer and when you're drinking it you just felt like you're drinking a tasty beer but when i west coast ipas came around it was like this is like hop juice is basically what it was and um making the malt profile as dry as possible would let you just taste nothing but hops um as it kind of evolved and also a lot of it had to do with the new hop varieties that were actually coming out. Um, 
these newer hop varieties that started with Citra, well, Simcoe was early on in Amarillo, and then you go into Citra, and then you get into Mosaic, and then El Dorado, and these 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 hops that are insanely fruity as opposed to citrusy. And they are really tasty. So a lot of brewers started shifting their hop varieties from the Centennial grapefruit um, to Citra Mosaic, now El Dorado. And these beer, these hops that are fruity, taste like fruit punch, cherries, um, tropical fruits, pineapple, mango, all these flavors coming out of the hops. And now that's what you get out of a West Coast IPA. A lot of them are still very dry but they have fruity hops. So the, the new, the new age West coast is still dry, but now you have these tropical flavors going you, you on. In them. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, stone there and, you know, obviously one of the, the classic American brewers now as we see it, but what lessons do you reckon you learned there and, you know, which of their beers do you admire most? Um. I learned uh, a ton at Stone. It was um, it was very as, uh, working at a brewery that big with um, that much kind of technology under the roof. You learn the right way to make craft beer because a lot of craft breweries or a lot of beer in general um, is can be made at home, and you're making it in a bucket, and you're making it with all the things you can get your hands on, and some of that translates into these smaller craft breweries where they're like, yeah, I bought this thing from a farm and now we're making beer in it. And I experienced a little bit of that. And then when you go to stone and you're like, Oh wow, this is how like the big boys make beer. Um, so I learned a lot of procedures, techniques, the proper way to make beer basically. Um, and also great beers. I mean, they're at the time, they're very kind of at the front of pushing new flavors into beers. Um, my favorite stone beer of all time was actually not even a hoppy beer. They, they're smoked porter with vanilla beans. Um, I had it early on, so I hadn't, you know, I was kind of new to craft beer, but when I had that, it was like a dessert in a class. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, nowadays the beers they're making, um, they have a delicious IPA that has El Dorado. The name is Delicious IPA. Has El Dorado. That's a great IPA. Um, and yeah, I mean, I love stuff. Yeah, and one of the questions we usually ask is, you know, if you were talking about West Coast IPAs, you know, which ones would you refer people to? But Stone definitely have some in that category. You know, alongside this one here, your, your own. Yeah, Stone IPA is is actually used as like a reference for West Coast IPAs. It, you know, it should it should be this color. You basically take Stone IPA and look at the color, and you say your West Coast IPA should be this color, and it should taste the way this Stone IPA tastes. So it cut. I don't know if they were they were definitely one of the top three, four, maybe five beers that really. Um, was considered a West Coast IPA. Now, that probably is a, is a good little point for us to start to move on. Uh, welcome to everyone who's been joining us in the Zoom room uh, this afternoon, coming in from your sunny Melbourne afternoons. Um, probably time for us to move on to beer number two, which is the West Coast Drift, the hazy IPA, if people have got their glasses ready. And um, Phil, I'd love you to sort of describe 
what similarities we're going to find with the hops and the flavours here as we just move from one to the other. Um, and obviously we'll talk about the differences as well, but um, just a really good opportunity to have, you know, two great lineups of hops next to each other. Yeah, so um, I'm looking at my recipe right now. West Coast, the West Coast Drift, which is our hazy IPA. Another name naming snafu that we had, we <laughs> named our hazy West Coast Drift. <laughs> So most everyone thinks it's a West Coast IPA. We, we've learned that lesson. Um, but so the hops in, in West Coast Drift, uh, there is one variety that they have in common, which is cashmere, which is more common in hazy IPAs than, than it is in West Coast IPA. So it does have cashmere. It has citra, which is another kind of staple. I always want to have at least one um, just go-to hop variety and in my IPA so it doesn't get too off track. So I keep Citra in there to make sure, you know, people know they're having an IPA. And then it has a third variety, which is from New Zealand, actually, um, Nelson. So we have New Zealand Nelson in that, in this beer as well. Do you bring in many beers from the, uh, many beers, many hops from the Southern Hemisphere? You know, how much sort of importation of hops do you do? As much as I can, uh, it's hard to get, and they are uh, very expensive, um, but there are also some great varieties. Um, Australian Galaxy is um, an amazing variety. We actually have a single hop pale ale um, with Galaxy. And then um, Nelson was like one of the first new uh, Southern Hemisphere hops that really hit the U.S., and people went crazy for it. And then there's a few other. I, I brew with a Motueka, which I believe is New Zealand as well. Pretty good pronunciation um, there as well, we've got to say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so they're all great, um, as long as I can get my hands on them. And you do have a little bit of quality issues when it comes that far. Um, they're, one interesting thing about hop varieties that most just general consumers don't know is there is a lot of variation within the variety. So you could get great Nelson and you can get not so great Nelson and you can get great Citra, not so great Citra. So over here, when the hops are coming from the Pacific Northwest, a lot of brewers like myself get the opportunity to um, go up to a hop country during the harvest and select their, their basically their lots of hops. So I get to try five or six different lots from the same variety and choose one. Um, most breweries my size don't get to do that with some Southern Hemisphere hops. Um, some do, uh, which those are the guys that make the great ones with, with some Southern Hemisphere hops. But that's just one little uh, hurdle that we have to deal with with those hops. We've heard a lot about that in recent episodes about, I guess you described the terroir that the, the hops are grown in. But even as some of the hop varieties have, have gently mutated over time and you're getting more garlicky flavours out of some of them rather than the, the old school bright fruit flavours and so forth. Yeah, and I mean, even on like one um, plot of land, just one area could have got a lot of sun or something and then you'll taste two, two lots of the same variety from the same farm and one will be... Um, like clearly better than the other. So um, it's always good to be able to select your own hops um, if you want the best stuff. 
Mark in the in the chat there is asking, what do you look for when you when you're picking the hops? Is it simply the smell, or is it you know how do you take all of these things into account? Is it the actual way they look as well? Yeah, you can see bad hops visually if, if they were beat up, or if they went through a dry spell, or if they um, went through a cold spell, you know, and they got frozen. Maybe um, you can see that visually. But the main thing is, is it's a little tough because, you know, all hops have some, when you're actually holding the hop flowers, there's a, a large component of what you're smelling is just the plant matter. So you kind of have to like sift through that if to really, hops very rarely smell when you're holding the hops, smell how it actually translates into the beer. So it's not, when you smell citra, it's not going to smell like a single hop citra IPA. What I look for is just off flavors. Like, is this, is this musty? Is this um, garlicky, oniony or things you don't want? And as long as I'm not detecting anything bad, then I can look and maybe find some nuance, some nice flavors in it and kind of use that to select um, what I'm looking for. I kind of feel like you know going on a on a hop picking uh, weekend would be a great little exercise for the for the cool room regulars one weekend. Obviously, there'd need to be a lot of you know beer drinking at the end, but I think it's a part of the the process <laughs> that we that we all find fascinating. It's fun being out in hop country. I mean, I'm sure you guys have your hop country, but around here it's in the Pacific Northwest, and we go up to Oregon and Washington State and. It's like these little farming towns get invaded by hundreds of brewers like for one month a year and we're all out there selecting hops. So it's a good time. Razor sales drop, presumably, and yeah. you know, black t-shirt <laughs> sales go up and you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you again just take us for, for a little bit of a walk, you know, and, and in terms of hazies, and maybe it's because it's come, you know, across the seas to us. By our standards, this isn't a mega hazy hazy. Um, how important is how it looks in the glass to, to how people perceive it from your point of view? Yeah, unfortunately, it can mean a lot. Um, it's funny because the, the turbidity or the clarity of a beer doesn't necessarily translate to how nice it's going to taste. But I will see people in... Um, you know, having a beer saying this, this isn't cloudy enough. Like that has anything to do with the flavor. But um, so we try to, you know, it, they are hazy. They're, they're hazy for good reasons that do contribute to flavor, but as it gradually clarifies uh, the it's not, it's not necessarily impacting the flavor all that much. And if your cans have settled out, I, I would recommend, if you're pouring the entire can, you could give it a little swirl and top it with um, what has settled in the can. That's that's kind of what they do in Germany with Hefweizens, is the, the the little bit of sediment will come out at the bottom of the can. I'll, um, I'll do it just as an excuse to pour a little bit more into my glass. It sounds like a there you go. reason to do it. And actually, I'm going to go grab one of those real quick. Yeah, go for it. That's no problems at all. I'll just talk here amongst myself and uh, remind people who are listening. Um, a big thank you for everyone who's joined in and been part of 
2021 in the call room. Um, we're looking forward to some really fun events in 2022. Uh, we've got another US uh, brewer lined up for mid-January, uh, hoping that all of that goes uh, going to plan. So we've got some really exciting things. We've got Future Mountain lined up. Uh, we've got some European brewers. So we're really committed to keeping things uh, going forward and having some, um, some really fun overseas uh, brewers on that you wouldn't normally get access to uh, if you were sitting around in Melbourne. So um, we're, we're looking forward. We've got some, some big names coming, coming up. And Phil, now you have the, the beer there with you, I presume. Yes. <laughs> so when you're smelling this, when you're tasting this, what, what are you getting from it? So aromas on a hazy are extremely fruity, um, generally pretty tropical. So mango, uh, pineapple, um, very soft fruit. I, I mean, strawberry. It, I mean, it's so fruity that I can't really even identify exactly which fruits I'm really picking up. I mean, it, I would just, I would just call it fruity, almost like fruit punch, um, juicy fruit gum, things like that. Um, so you can get some of those aromas on West Coast, but the, the main thing that differentiates a, a hazy for the most part from West Coast is a complete lack of bitterness. Um, the, the, basically, if you were to look up how to make a hazy IPA, they would say do not or prevent bitterness at all costs. So we do all kinds of tricks to keep the bitterness out of the out of this beer the tricky thing is that hops contribute bitterness so you need to make an extremely hoppy beer with as little bitterness as you possibly can um so i would say the biggest the biggest difference you're going to notice in an ip in a hazy is when you actually drink it you're going to get a very smooth round mouthfeel from the different grains that you use and use to make them hazy and you're also going to get a complete lack of bitterness, what makes, which makes it very, I mean, basically sweet, fruity, um, and very, I mean, what, what, what else would I say? It's, it's almost slightly dessert-like. Um, it's not like a dessert stout, but um, it's just, it tastes almost like a, like a fruit smoothie type. Yeah, there's certainly a bit profile. of strawberry smoothie you can get out of, out of this one. Mm -hmm. um, We've been doing this show for years now, and I feel like, you know, each month we, we ask the question of, you know, when do you think the hazy craze is going to die down? Here in Australia, it's still going full on. Um, how about over in, in LA? Is that the same sort of experience that people are loving this style and it's, but it's just keeping on going? Uh, West Coast IPAs are slowly, gradually making a comeback. Um, Hazy IPAs were definitely the number one beer. <laughs> yes, I know. I agree. <laughs> um, hazy IPAs were the number one beer for the past maybe four years. And the thing about hazies is um, they're very filling. You know, so that haze comes from um, glucans and things from grain and stuff that you know, fill your, fill you up. It's like, you're basically like drinking a few slices of bread when you, when you have a hazy IPA. Um, so the novelty of it, the, you know, it wasn't clear, 
Um, it did taste different with that lack of bitterness. People kind of thought that was fun for a while, but it's, it's not, it's, it just is, it can't be your go-to beer. It's just too heavy and too, um, filling, you know? So people still like it, but I think people are finally coming back around to, uh, a clean West coast IPA and also what's making the biggest kind of increase here are loggers, you know, pilsners, hoppy pilsners and other loggers, um, are, are making a big comeback. And I think it's people like, you know, I, whenever I talk about beers and unique beers and strong beers like that, um, they're great. They're extremely flavorful. It's a fun experience to take a little taste of it. But if you're, if you want to do a beer drinking experience, Let's say you're camping and you want to have a few beers by the campfire or you're barbecuing outside or you're by the pool. You, you, you want a beer beer. You want a lager. You want a, you know, a nice hoppy West Coast IPA and these really crazy beers. Um, you can't really do a beer drinking experience with them. You can taste them and be wowed by them and say, oh, this is very interesting. But then you'll go back to a, you know, you'll, you'll have a half a hazy and then you'll go back and drink three Pilsners after that, you know, so. That's, look, that's very similar trend-wise to what we're seeing over here, particularly, you know, for, for hot summer days, the, the Pilsners, the Lagers, far more of those coming, coming back, even in the last 18 months or so, I reckon. Um, that's probably a really sensible time to ask sort of a bit about your beer education, because I imagine that from a rough guess, much of what you would have learned early on wouldn't have been about hazies. You started out at the Siebel Institute and then spent a bit of time in Germany. Is that right? Yeah. So um, here in the U.S., when I got started, you know, a little over 15 years ago, there's two places you could go to um, basically go to brewing school. And one of them was Siebel Institute um, based in Chicago. Can you tell and us a little they, bit about that? Because in Australia, we've only got the very beginnings of sort of formal beer education in, in that regard. Yeah. Um, so Siebel Institute's pretty interesting. It's been around forever since um, the early 1900s. Um, when you're in the class, they have all the graduating classes and... Um, in those, there's like the original macro brewers from the U.S. There's August, August Bush, founder of um, Anheuser-Busch. There's uh, Scholl and there's Miller and there's all those guys up on the wall that um, went to Siebel. Um, so, yeah. So and to go back a little bit, when I, I was home brewing, I, I thought, this would be a cool job. I mean, can you go to school for this? And I just Googled beer school and um, Siebel popped up and so did uh, UC Davis, a university here in California that has a beer program that, um, and those were really the only two places. So I chose uh, to go to Siebel and what they do is they bring you into Chicago and they do um, classroom time in Chicago, and then they ship the whole class. They only do like 30 to 40 person classes at a time. Then they ship you off to um, Munich, Germany, and they have a partnership with a, a brewing school in Germany. And they, that brewing school actually has brewing facilities. So that's where you do the hands-on 
um, kind of part of the part of your education. And then um, that's what it is. It's a it's a two year uh, German curriculum that they do. It's it's a curric they got the curriculum from Germany that takes them two years and they cram it into like five months here. Um, so it's pretty intense. You're really not doing anything else for like five months. And then by the time you're done, um, you, that's, that's pretty much one of the, one of the top brewing educations that you can get here in the U S. Um, so I did that and it was an amazing experience. I say, I, I got the most from going to Germany because you're taught by all, I mean, these are like German, basically brewmasters that are coming in to teach you and you learn how seriously they take it. And it's a true science out there and it's a profession out there. And these guys um, take their job very seriously. And I really took a lot from that coming back to, you know, American craft beer, you know, you go to some berries and it's uh, some dude with dreadlocks and flip flops. And he's like, yeah, we make beer here. And, um, I, I try and bring a little more professionalism to it. And that's kind of what I got when I, when I spent time in Germany. And, uh, and how many hazies did you brew while you're in Germany or, you know, is, Oh God. Um, so hazies didn't exist back then, luckily, but I did learn everything about what is a proper beer. And then when hazies did come around, I fought it so hard. I said, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense. You literally look at what you're supposed to be doing to make beer. And with a hazy, you do the opposite. Like that's how you make a hazy. Um, so it was driving me crazy at my previous brewery. I fought it off for about a year and a half and finally gave in. And sure enough, as soon as I made the first hazy, it like we couldn't keep it on the shelves. So you know, I, at that point, you know, just kept me, kept making it. Do you remember the first hazy that you had or, the, or even perhaps more importantly, the first hazy that you had and enjoyed other than your own, of course? Um, yeah. I mean, being in the South Bay, um, some of the guys at the brewery would bring by a can of Monkish. Um, I mean, Monkish was pretty early on making those hazy. So we would have a Monkish and, I would say, I mean, it's tasty and it has a ton of hop character, which is great. I love hops, but it's just a little too filling for me. And I mean, a big thing for my brewing education is the shelf stability of a hazy. All that haze is basically what makes beer go stale. So if you have them super fresh, um, you don't get some of those um, negative effects, but you're taught, and that's why beer is supposed to be clear, because the things that are making this beer hazy are things that oxygen can attach to to basically be oxidized. Oxidized is basically stale. So you're just making your beer vulnerable to being staled faster by having all this stuff floating around in your beer. Um, so those were my arguments. I'm like, oh, that beer leave it on a shelf for a week and it's going to be trash. And I would tell her and get that beer out of here. But, uh, you know, they, they actually hold up. Okay. On shelves, not as bad as I would have thought originally. And um, a lot of the bigger brewers have found ways to kind of get around that. They're, they're actually kind of like artificially hazing their beer just to say it's a hazy, but they, because it's 
it's not true haze from like oats and wheat but they do held up hold up just fine on shelves that was like sierra nevada figured that out and a few of the other bigger breweries that's a, uh, that's a, I was literally going to use this as an opportunity to encourage people who are listening to the podcast for the first time to, to go back and check out our archives. We had Sierra Nevada on about a year ago, and that was exactly the kinds of things that they were talking about, particularly with the hazy little thing and so forth, which is a beer that yeah. is designed to be on the shelves in supermarkets, yeah. you know, for months. Um, you know, it's a very tricky thing to get right. Yeah, I mean, if you're a small little brewery and you're just selling out, out of your roll-up door out back it's not that big a deal but you know when you go to formal brewery training they're training you to make a beer that's gonna could potentially be shipped you know across the country and sit on a grocery store shelf for a while so that's that's how i try and approach my beers but um you know hazy's they have their place now um i don't have all of my regular co-hosts in the room with me today but Jacob Jackson was pretty much a regular co-host in episode 114. And Jacob, you've got a, a ripper question there. Uh, and as usual, my autocorrect has changed unmute to unmet, but I'm sure you understood what I meant. And um, why don't you ask your question, mate? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. Um, so assuming won't mean the one on the hops. So it was just, we were talking about hops before and, you know, going to the trouble of the hop farm and really inspect the hops. And I was just kind of wondering... Are there any particular weather conditions that are really favourable that you're looking for? Like, do you keep track of the climate that's gone on for that farm? Because we don't have a lot of brewers talk about hops a lot, and I imagine it's just because they can't actually get to the farms. But I'm just curious, um, how, how deep do you go on this? And does it depend on the hop variety? Not, not the question I meant, Jacob, but let's oh. get Phil's answer to that one, and then oh, you can sorry, ask another that one it. as well. Wrong one. <laughs> All good, my friend. Um, so, yeah, that's a very good question. That's a very technical hop kind of thing to be looking at so what i i do is i i more rely on on my hop suppliers for that kind of stuff because they will do crop reports um and they'll keep you updated um when throughout the um the growth period of the hops and they'll they'll give you reports on that they'll tell you i will get an update in my email inbox you know we just had a weather storm and things aren't looking good or um, hops are looking great so far. And then they'll tell us the harvest report of what kind of yields they got out of their harvest, um, the hop, what the quality is, things like that. So the, the, per, the people that are looking at what you specifically asked would be hop farmers. And then I kind of go to them to, to um, help them guide me through what I'm, what I would be looking for. And, and, if you have a good relationship with your hop suppliers, they'll tell you, they'll say, you know, you know they might even not even recommend a hop variety. They'll say like this, this variety struggled this year. Um, this is a good substitution for that. Or um, our yields were amazing on this. We have a ton of it and it's great. Buy it. And then I, if I trust the person, I'll, I'll take their word for it and I'll buy it. But when I'm doing my actual selection, um, it's more like one tier down from like what the hop farmer knows. It's more just, you know, of these six lots that I'm looking at, what's my favorite? Um, so that's, that's where I go. I mean, Sierra Nevada might get into that level of detail on stuff because um, they have the resources for that kind of thing. Yeah. That's uh, it's interesting how, how you can, um, 
at least so you can personally double check what they're saying, you know, to some extent, which is great. But I, I guess I should ask the question he wanted me to ask, and that was more of a cheeky one about you refer to hazy IPAs and you don't use the term New England IPAs being a West Coast boy. Is this the East versus West rivalry going on there? <laughs> um, so there has been a, a huge evolution of what is now the hazy IPA. And they're, at least out here, they're, they have been uh, separated. There's a different... There's a difference between a New England IPA and a hazy IPA. And the evolution was the New England IPA is, was the beginnings of what turned into the hazy. And it's a funny story. It's so breweries um, like Alchemist with a uh, heady topper um, being one of like the famous hazy IPAs, but more New England IPA. So that beer came out. It was delicious. Everyone loved it. And it had a slight haze, just a touch of haze. And um, people were saying, because it wasn't a West Coast clear beer, they were saying, this beer is delicious and it's hazy. But I mean, it was, it was just slightly hazy. And then over a few years' time, it snowballed into, well, if a little haze is good, more haze must be better. And then you got hazier and then people said, so these beers are hazy. So even more haze must be even better than that. And it got hazier and hazier and hazier to the point where it looks like a glass of milk and you can't see through it. And it's, it, yeah, it's just incredibly hazy. So if, if we're making a hazy IPA that is anything other than like what Hetty Topper originally was, I'll call it a hazy IPA, but a true New England IPA, um, I consider to be a nice hoppy beer, but not crazy, crazy hazy. So that's kind of the difference now. Not everyone makes that distinction, but, um, at, you know, that's kind of my opinion on it. And I mean, there, there's a good amount of people that have kind of seen the whole evolution and now they know the difference between the two. So they will call these crazy hazies, hazy IPAs, and a New England IPA is, you know, slightly different. Yeah, I think a lot of brewers tend to use the terms interchangeably in my experience in Australia, and maybe they don't understand that subtlety. Um, but I would also say it's an interesting observation that you said, as soon as it was a little bit hazy, they went more hazy. And you remember West Coast, of course, they went a bit bitter, and then they went more bitter, and there's more IBUs. And I wonder, is this just a natural kind of brewer thing of more, more, more? And you ever see brewers go the other way, dial back, dial back, dial back, you know? Well, th luckily, that's what's happening now, is the Pilsners and the going back to West Coast IPAs. But yeah, I think Stone is like, the number one culprit of that with bitterness where they got a little bitter. And now the, one of their slogans was something about bitter beer. I, I forget what it is, but it's, they were, they were proud of how bitter their beer was. Ruination is Stone's double IPA, which boasted that it'll ruin your palate because it's so dang bitter. Um, and then obviously we all knew that kind of went away. Now bitterness is coming back down. But then, you know, shortly after that was the haze thing where a little haze was popular. So more haze must be better. And then more haze than that must be better. So, yeah, we're going through that whole thing now. And I, it is coming back down and hopefully it continues to because I, 
I mean, I do understand. I mean, if I were to appreciate what we're talking about, I would say New England IPAs are nice beers. Those are good beers. But um, when you get too hazy, and I would even say my beer is more of like a New England IPA, actually. But um, but when you get too crazy with this hazy stuff, it's just it's just over the top. It's an arms race for haze. I think that's pretty good, and I think the what Jacob alluded to there about in Australia, the term you know New England IPA is used to cover a much broader range of things than I suspect it would be you know, in America, that if we shipped over things that we were calling New England IPAs, you'd be pretty surprised at some of the things that might fit within that continuum over here. Um, if and it, it is our, Yeah, no, go, Phil. Okay. It's a recent thing for us as well. It's like, it wasn't until like a year or so ago that, you know, you go back and you get a heady topper from the bottle shop and you're like, wait a minute, there's a huge difference here. And then, like amongst the brewing community, we kind of all decided that there's a difference. So early on in the haze kind of arms race, we were calling everything New England IPAs, and then it did get so far gone that we had to, you know, basically make two categories out of what was going on. You know, the original slightly hazy IPAs, and then like the crazy hazy IPAs. I reckon what we might do, if everyone's happy, is press pause for a moment or two so that everyone can go to the fridge and get some more cold beers out, take care of anything else they might need to take care of, feeding the cat, etc., getting a cricket score, which is important here in Australia. And then we'll come back and discuss the double bogey, uh, double IPA. Uh, more opportunities in there for audience questions. And we might just touch really briefly on the uh, city of Zed before we let Phil go into the night um, LA time. So if that works for everyone, um, I'm gonna press pause for a moment. And you're back in the cool room. We're here with Phil from Eureka Brewing. Uh, we're having some magnificent beers this afternoon. We're moving on now to the uh, double bogey, the double IPA. Um, talk about ruination just before the break there, Phil. and. Um, Here's another big flavoursome beer. Um, it's still only 3.30 in the afternoon in Australia. We're going to be, uh, by the time we've knocked off a few of these, it's going to be a, a big <laughs> afternoon and a big evening here, I reckon. Um, take us on a little guided tour of this beer. You know, what, what hops are we dealing with? But just as importantly, how should it be looking in the glass? Again, aromas and, you know, we haven't spoken much about sort of the aromatic hops and what they've brought, you know, what are we dealing with here? Yeah. So I'm pulling up the uh, recipe. So Citra Mosaic again, this one I was, you know, after feeling um, hearing some of the feedback from Bay Crusher, I was like, okay, maybe I need to keep it within my lane a little bit. So I did um, just a classic West coast double IPA. Citra Mosaic and Simcoe. Um, the thing I changed up with Simcoe is um, just because I've had great experience with it in the past, there's a hot product that you can get that um, out here, it's, it's made by a hop supplier called named Yakima Chief and it's their cryo line. Yep. Um, and it's basically, they, I believe they cryogenically freeze the hops and remove any plant matter 
and all you're getting is like the hop resins. Um, so it's pure hop flavor without any leafy flavors, grassy flavors, and they sell it as uh, cryo. And you can get multiple hop varieties in their cryo products. So you can get mosaic cryo, you can get citric cryo. And I have worked a lot with uh, Simcoe cryo and everything I made with it just tasted great. So I, I knew I wanted to use Simcoe and I said, well, let's just use Simcoe cryo just um, for the heck of it. And because I had a great experience with it. So um, it's like twice the mass of a regular hop. Like if you were just to fill a, bu a five pound bucket or something, um, you get twice the amount of hop flavors for the amount you're using. It's also twice as expensive because of that. <laughs> um, so uh, it's Citra Mosaic and Simcoe Cryo. And then um, because just, it's a double IPA and those are... I just want to jump in with a quick question because on the label it says whole cone Simcoe, Simcoe rather than Cryo. Now that's why I was asking, I think, you know, but what does whole cone mean or is that just another way of saying Cryo? Because cryo over here, we just have it on the front of the label. It would say cryo simcro, or we people love seeing cryo yeah. on their labels at the moment. It's true. So you guys are familiar with cryo, yeah. Um, so I was I, I was going to get to there is whole cone in the process ah, as right. well. Okay. Um, so yeah, in the kettle, it's in place of Simcoe pellets that I'd be throwing in the kettle. I'm throwing Simcoe cryo pellets into the kettle. Um, but because it's a double IPA and it's basically other than a triple IPA, it's, it's your beer that you want to go all out in with your hops. I also use whole cone Simcoe and, um, it's a funny story as to how, why I'm using whole cone is, um, so, uh, Eureka Brewing, um, we, we started by buying an existing brewing facility, um, it was a brewery that had run for about a year or so um, and kind of went under and was selling the facility, not the brand or the beers or anything, just the facility. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier. That's why Adam and I had to pounce on it like out of nowhere in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so we bought this brewing facility. And I mean, I was going through it for months, finding weird little quirks, like what the heck is this or what's that? And I'm going through the facility. And one day I find this thing. I'm like, is this a hot back? And then um, I look at it and it turns out it is a hot back. And a hot back is kind of an old school um, piece of equipment for an old school brewing technique, which is called hot backing, which is basically um, you fill hot backs with whole cone hops. And it's the very last step of your brew. As you're transferring your brew into the fermenter to start fermentation, it kind of gets a little detour and it goes through all these whole cone hops right before it goes into the fermenter. And it gets this final like infusion of hop flavor. Um, not a lot of people do it anymore. Um, and I was like, well, if I have a hop back, I might as well use it. <laughs> and there's not really any other good way to use whole cone hops. You can't really throw whole cone hops into your kettle. It'll mix it. It'll get all gunked up in the pumps and the pipes. Um, you have to have equipment made specifically for whole cone hops. 
and one of those pieces of equipment is a hot back. So I said, well, if I've got a hot back, I'm going to use it. And um, I figured I might as well use it on the double FBA. I think I found it after I had already brewed a few brews. Um, so I was like, I'm going to start using this now. So um, for the double IPA, we use our hot back with whole cone Simcoe hops. Um, so that's where the whole cone comes from. And using whole cone hops in a hot back um, is basically, you know, just one last infusion of hop flavor, which is always good. I mean, that's never a bad thing in an IPA. Also, it's a little more, um, it's a little more complex of a hop flavor of a hop pr profile. You've got the entire cone in there. So there's always going to be a slightly different flavor that you're getting as opposed to like a pelletized hop. Um, so I use my hop back on our double bogey brews. I, and the other beer I use our hop back on is uh, Lost City of Zed. So both of those beers have whole cone hops using our hop back. Well, it's an awesome little way. We'll talk a little bit about the Lost City of Zed before we close things out, but it's that's a good little reference to the fact that that's where we'll be finishing things off today. Um, that just sounds, often we ask, you know, what's the craziest or strangest or most disturbing thing you've ever seen in a cool room, which particularly in Australia, you know, the cool room, the big refrigerated rooms, whether it's at a, at a pub or a brewery, but um, that sounds like one of the, one of the best fortuitous finds in a brewery just to find equipment like that lying around. Yeah. It's been fun. I mean, there's, we always joke around, like there's these old, this the previous brewery stuff. And like, I don't, I don't know what they were thinking when they bought that thing, but then there's, you know, great things like the hot back that we find and, um, it's been a little bit of like a treasure hunt over this past year of going through their stuff. Um, it's a great facility and it's almost new because they weren't around that long, but there's still, it has its little quirks here and there. And, and brewers can never have too many toys. Isn't that right? Oh yeah. I've got a wish list that Adam, um, does not even want to know what it looks like. <laughs> That nearly every often when we have brewers and owners on at the same time um it's just amusing to watch the uh, dynamics between the two of them as we talk about <laughs> well i'd love to make a triple ipa and use all of these hops and and then the other bloke goes yeah. oh well, how much is that going to cost us then oh yeah <laughs> jacob is uh very much on song tonight he's leading the he's leading the way with a number of questions and, he, and he's taking us to really this both this can and the lost city of zed um just amazing can artwork uh but also the names and the themes there and uh i think pretty much everyone who we've delivered this beer to has has sent me a message to say how amazing they look we discussed early on the the basic sort of uh, brand itself but can you tell us a little bit about the story about where the inspiration for the various names comes from and who does the artwork and how does that process of collaboration work? Yeah. So um, for the most part, it's my uh, business partner, Adam. He uh, graphic design is his little kind of fun, little creative release. So he has been doing the artwork, um, especially the, the beers that you have today, as we're getting further on, we're getting a little more, um, pulling different art from different places, but um, these are all Adam. Um, he's um, he's a he's an incredibly uh, smart person. So I mean, he's an electrical engineer, but when he wants to figure out how to do make cool 
images on his computer. He figured that out as well. And um, he's very creative and he's made all of these cans. Um, the problem is he also runs a very busy company. So it's, <laughs> he, <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of time for his, for our cans. So there's been a little bit of a evolution as to our branding due to really some of his uh, time and his availability. So uh, at first we were like, our brand is California. Everything's going to be California. And then Adam came up with Bay Crusher, referring to the Bay Area. West Coast Drift is, it, I will also say some of his brands are a little complex. Like you, you have, to, it's almost like reading a novel to understand what he's trying to get across on his can labels. West Coast Drift is actually supposed to represent California separating from the rest of the country and falling into the ocean. Um, is that a in geographical distance, or a political thing? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a geographical concept. They always said there's a, um, a earthquake fault that could separate California, but there's a lot of people nowadays that it's also a political concept. Um, so if you see on the, to the left of the Minerva, there's a city in the distance. That's supposed to be Las Vegas. And uh, we're separating, we're separating from Nevada in that. Um, so that's his crazy idea there. But it is a California thing, you know. We're still on California. We're floating away. But then um, he started running out of ideas, basically. And then we're just like, what else can we come up with? So we made our brand kind of multi-faceted, um, um, where. Most of our brands either are one of two things, California or now Discovery, because that goes with Eureka. So that's what Lost City of Zed is. Lost City of Zed is an explore, a story of exploration in the jungle, finding something. So at this point, our, our brand, our labels will either be one of two things, something referencing California or something referencing a discovery and those two things give enough juices for adam to get it working and he, he'll come up with a label and then double bogey is just because we're golfers <laughs> <laughs> although i was so mad at him when he did double bogey because i said we need to do a golf beer and he's like okay we'll call it double bogey okay i'll design the label and he comes up with this label that's a freaking astronaut it's like that's not golf but somehow that's his golf label. Um, so we have an astronaut hitting a golf ball for our golf label. But and you didn't go for something slightly more positive like albatross or, you know, it was the double bogey that seemed like the best one? Well, I mean, double bogey, double IPA is where it came from. So, but yeah, now it's like no one sees any golf on this. Adam and I, are, as you know, we're friends since kindergarten. So we're basically like brothers. So we basically don't have any problem giving each other a hard time and i was not happy when he came up with double bogey it's ridiculous it should have been a beautiful golf course like in palm springs or something but he comes up with this astronaut so so the astronaut i can explain that they played golf on the moon when they went there i think neil armstrong brought a golf club and a golf ball so he's obviously stuck with his sci-fi theme and gone oh you want golf do you well, here it is on the moon but that, that would be my interpretation it's true. He, he's a he's a 
space nut. So um, I, I don't know if you've seen our Pilsner, but our Pilsner is Pills of Creation um, in reference to Pillars of Creation, which is a, um, you know, something you can see up in, in the universe. Um, so yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a space nut. So we do kind of have this um, tendency to get a little more spacey than, than most with our labels. I have just posted a link in the uh, call room chat, but also if you're if you're listening to the podcast version, do yourself a favor and just check out the eurekabruco.com slash beers and you'll be able to see all of the labels there and that um the pills of creation is is on there as well. And um it's a great looking website as well. We deal with a lot of breweries that, you know, make some fantastic beers, even some that have fantastic can art, but um, don't necessarily take it to the extent of having a great looking website. I'd certainly recommend yours to people who are who are listening in at the moment. Thank you. Um, I've alluded to it before. We do have one big traditional cool room question, and that's sort of the opportunity. You don't ever have to say it's at a brewery that you worked at or you were responsible, but what's the most disastrous or confronting or amusing thing you've ever seen taking place in a cool room? Uh, we've had many stories, lots of explosions over the years, uh, you know, some sharks in cool rooms and various other bits and pieces. Do you have a story on those lines? Um, I mean, it's probably not going to be anything different than your normal explosion story, but... You just um, with it anyway. We love an explosion story. <laughs> so, in my last brewery, um, we were we had a big demand for nitro beers, which is like the Guinness pour nitro and nitro beers are a little tricky to make. You need to, um, you, you need to, um, infuse nitrogen. Nitrogen doesn't go into solution at normal pressures. It goes in at a much higher pressure. So your typical brewery tanks can't hold that type of pressure. But what you can do is you can add nitrogen into a keg because a keg is much stronger than brewery tanks. So I had this genius idea of rigging up probably 10 kegs in our cold box. We call them cold boxes, cool, cool room. And um, having like this big octopus of lines tapping each keg and fusing um, nitrogen into them. Um, so I kind of invented this idea and I built it. So I knew, I was really, the, I guess it was my fault. I was the only one who really knew how it worked. Um, so one of my other co-owners at my previous brewery sold um, one of these nitro kegs and he went into the cool room to um, grab it. And so he uncoupled one of the kegs, but my whole system that I built didn't have any, um backflow restrictors or didn't 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 stop the flow from right okay that's how do i the nitrogen was going in there's nothing to stop the beer from coming back out (laughs) if there's an opening in the system so my buddy uncouples one of the kegs and he got that keg released but now the other nine kegs were evacuating out of the thing he just undid and he didn't know what was going on. And it was going like a fire hose. And I was standing outside and the door was open. 
And all I heard was like screaming. And then every once in a while, the hose would go by the door and the beer would fly out. And then it would come by again and the beer would fly out. And then finally he figured out how to shut it off and he just walked out of the coal box like covered in stout. Um, so I guess that's, I mean, that's your typical beer room explosion. But yeah, that, that's the one. Now that's good. And it's one of those things you really don't understand how much beer fits into a keg until it's all over the floor of a cool room or a cold box, do you? So I imagine with nine or 10 of them, that would have been all the more the case. Yep. Um, we've got a few questions from people in the Zoom room, probably got room for a couple more. Phil's been very generous with his time over in the American night, but let's, um, James, do you want to unmute and ask your one, mate? It's a, it's a good question. Yeah, thanks, David. And thanks, Phil. It's wonderful to hear about your brewery. Um, I, what I wanted to ask you about was if you can foresee, maybe prognosticating, if you can see any new trends on the horizon, particularly around new hops that might become of interest that we might not have seen yet in Australia. Hmm. Uh, do you guys have Strata out there yet? The hop variety Strata? Yeah. That's the newest one um, that as brewers, we're, we're just being able to get large amounts of. With hops, it's um, the crops with any agricultural thing. You know, your first crop is very small. Your second one is larger. Your third one's larger than that. So uh, Strata is just now getting into that uh, phase of being somewhat available, widely available. Last two years, it was, last year, it was like a select little bit came out. And then before that, it was almost, no one even really heard of it. So you're going to start seeing a lot of Strata beers because it's an amazing hop. It could be up there with like the Citro Mosaic type hop varieties. It's, it's not like Sabro that is kind of wild and unique. It's, it's just delicious and good without any really unique things going on with it. Um, so that's the variety I'm really looking at. I mean, Sabro came before Strata, but Sabro is a little, as we all know, unique. Strata can be the next big hop coming out. Um, and the hop after that, I don't even know. I mean, the thing about hops is they take years to develop. So, um, there's nothing's going to come out of left field. It's, it's going to it's going to be a slow rise for any hop variety. Um, the testing process for hop varieties is something like 10 years. Um, they give us hops that don't even have names that just have numbers and um, we'll play around with those. And then maybe a, they'll graduate from a number to having a name, but then maybe the that hop doesn't even turn out that popular. So um, there's no hops that I know of other than Strata. I think Strata is the next new hop. And then after that, we'll see. I mean, who knows really past that point. Um, as far as trends, um, like we, we've all been saying um, this whole time, it's uh, a trend towards scaling back. It's uh, lagers, pilsners, and ambers. It's stuff that's not as filling you know people like west coast ipas i wouldn't be surprised if pale ales become really big especially really nice super hoppy pale ales um because people love hops that's not a problem we all know people love hops 
people are scaling back from the heavy beers, from the alcohol contents, things like that. Um, pale ales here are still a hard sell. It's crazy because if you like IPAs, uh, pale ale is just a, li a little bit less hop character and less ABV alcohol content. But um, there's still a slightly tough sell out here. But I love pale ale. So I think pale ales um, are going to follow behind the Pilsners and the other lagers that are coming up. And um, I mean, that's what I see now. Great complex, great light complex beers would be nice, like Belgian saisons, table beers, things like that. I see those falling into people wanting less intense beers and just something that's pleasant. You know, it doesn't need to be blow your your head off. Um, so, you know, a scaling back is what I'm seeing as far as intensity goes, which is which is nice for beer. I think that's what I think that's the where beer should be is in in a nice moderate category. Very, it can be creative, it can be flavorful, but it doesn't need to like blow your head off with these crazy things that they're doing. Just before I throw to Jacob for a question, I guess the other one that we're seeing emerging here in Australia is really, I guess, what you'd call, you know, mid-strength beers at 3 or 4% ABV and 0% beers as well. In the last two years, there's been a real jump. Are you seeing the same things out in your part of the world? I have seen some, um, they call it NA beers, non-alcoholic beers. I have seen some non-alcoholic brands uh, doing well. Um, and the three to five percenters, we see almost none of, um, which would be interesting. That would be a fun little category to start working with because it's a, it's a cool category of beer to, to, um, enjoy. It's almost like you could just, you drink that for hydration, you know, if you're thirsty or something. That's, that's overstating the case a little, perhaps, but that's but that's essentially right. <laughs> so there's been, and quite amazingly, in both craft beers and mainstream beers, that trend has emerged over here, um, particularly for people who want to go out and have an afternoon watching the football with their friends kind of thing and drink throughout that time, but, you know, who don't want to be, you know, miss work the next day or, you know, want to remember actually going to the football yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are trending lower or alcohol content, but getting down to 3%, it's almost, it's funny, it's almost a little tricky to make that type of beer and have it still flavorful because uh, there's so much water in, in, that, in that type of beer that you need to do a few tricks to it to actually have, have some character and um, have some flavor to it. So I don't know if us u.s brewers have really taken on that little um technical task yet um but if we do that that could be that could be a trend that's not even showing its face yet here in the u.s is like these three percenters that would be it, cool it's definitely a big one here and it's definitely one of those ones that really good brewers do magnificently well and get rewarded in sales for it Whereas, mm -hmm. as you say, it's a very tricky thing to make. People understand that. And there are some shocking ones out there. Um, but the very best ones are, are pretty amazing feats of, feats of brewing. Um, cool. Jacob, I'm going to throw to you, mate. You had a great question. 
Yep, sorry, and I'm just to take the indulgence of just the comment of pale ales. James has been onto this for a while, but locally, a lot of brewers I found have lifted their game in terms of their pale ales. They haven't released new ones, but their core range pales are really becoming top quality. Like they've worked on them, you can tell. So I think that could be the next 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 bit. But my question was actually a bit more broad, and I feel bad for you as the brewer on deck trying to tackle this one, but. How do you think climate change is potentially affecting your hops, you know, and hop harvests? You know, is this something you, you know, because I know you've had a huge dry period in the Pacific Northwest, you know, how are you dealing with this? Are you seeing effects of climate change with your hops? Uh, yes. Uh, this last harvest was pretty bad. Uh, we basically got uh, like alarms from our hop suppliers, like this harvest sucks. Um, and the harvest before that was okay until a huge forest fire came through a big of the Pacific Northwest and we lost a lot of hops from that one. So the past two harvests have been pretty bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's being affected, affected. Um, the question is, are the hop farmers going to be able to adapt or are hop growing regions going to shift to an, another region possibly? Um, that could happen. In general, that's what people tend to do is they adapt or industries tend to do is adapt. So um, I don't see it as um, like a doomsday <laughs> scenario, but it's not great right now. And we're definitely gonna affect it, be affected for the next couple of years. And then we'll see how um, the hop industry adapts. I mean, I, you are already seeing hop growing happening in um, other areas, at least of the United States. There's a lot of hop growing in the state of Idaho now, which up till, I mean, I think that's probably within the last, I don't know. I might be wrong, but I think it's probably within the last five, 10 years. Um, you can buy a lot of Idaho hops. There's actually a hop variety called Idaho 7 that was um, originated in Idaho because of the new hop kind of industry going on there. I know I buy some hops from Michigan, um, another state here that is um, growing some hops. So, you know, the, the hop growing region might be shifting a little bit to adapt to that. Also, barley is being affected we had a terrible barley crop as well this year. I mean, this is more of a farmer could tell, be much more, um, uh, have a lot more information on this kind of stuff than I do. But I, I hear from the farmers that the barley crop was terrible. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely being affected. It's a really good question, Jacob, and I think, you know, we see in Australia as well that, you know, the farmers are the ones who understand first and foremost what climate change is doing to our farming regions. It's a, it's a, it's a real issue and one that may not be being addressed properly yet. Um, Phil, you've been amazingly uh, generous with your time. Mark has been consistently typing a question into the chat and I'm going to ask it. I'm not going to ask if seltzers are taking off in California. I'm presuming that they are and that they have and that that is as big in the US as it is here now. And we'd 
don't like to talk about seltzers here in the cool room, much as Mark would like to spend all of his time drinking them and talking about them, but sours. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and perhaps particularly in your little area that you've talked about, you know, your, your group of sort of 15 breweries sort of in your, in your part of the world, are any of them sour breweries? And, you know, is that a speciality that you're seeing taking off in America? So we're saying sour, correct? Yeah. I thought I heard seltzer at No, you once. did, and I moved past it very quickly. So the question is oh, about okay. both. We're not going to talk <laughs> seltzer. Let's just talk okay. seltzer. No, sour. <laughs> Okay, okay. I think I get it. Um, as far as sour brewing goes, um, it's funny, Monkish actually started as a sour brewery. Um, the problem with sour brewing is that they take so dang long to make, and no one drinks a lot of it. You'll always have one glass of an amazing sour, and that you'll say, you know, that is phenomenal. Oh, okay, now give me six Pilsners, you know, after that. So that that's the problem with sour beer. It's extremely hard to make make a business run off of sours. Um, for the most part, sour brewing only really works if it's um, a small component of an existing brewery's production. Um, I happen to know a little bit about that. I was... I worked at the brewery, if anyone knows the brewery, B-R-U-E-R-Y in Orange County. So when I was there, we had uh, 2,000 oak barrels aging with sour beer. Um, and it was, it's a crazy, it's a crazy business to run when you're trying to, to make that much sour beer. Sour beer is more of a, um, someone, I think someone says sour beer is like trying to like sour beer is like owning a cat and regular beer is like owning a dog. Um, it's like, <laughs> that is great. It's like sa sour beer kind of does what it wants. And, um, you lose a lot of beer. Some beer gets weird. Um, doesn't always turn out the way you want. You have to do a lot of blending to figure out what kind of profile you want. Um, so it's a big investment. The Belgian sour beers have been around for so long. They've got it down. They've got established brands that their beers that they make are phenomenal for the most part. So, um, to be here in the U S and to be strictly producing sour beers is extremely difficult. There's a few breweries that are doing it. Um, they're doing it pretty well. There's a lot of breweries that tried it and, and failed. Um, I made a lot of sour beer at the brewery and um, I made one or two sours <clears throat> at my previous brewery. Don't have any sour projects going right now at Eureka, but um, if I do, it'll be a small kind of side project. It's, it's just tough to run a business off of that. They are incredibly complex and delicious, but just it's, it's a tough, tough business to run. Absolutely right. Look, uh, let's move towards wrapping things up. Bill, could you give us the social medias for Eureka before we talk about anything else about how we can access the great beers? Oh, geez. Let me see if I even know that. I mean, it's, I think it's... Um, hold on. <laughs> I don't do the social media. Uh, Eureka Bruco is our, is our, kinda, is our handle on, on Facebook and on Instagram. 
and very much well worth a follow on uh, Instagram. There's some great images there. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to the uh, conversation today, but you haven't got the beers with you, check out the Cool Rooms at Shopify. You can buy them in Australia from us. Uh, they're reasonably limited supply across Australia at the moment, but our good friends from Phoenix Importers, uh, I'm sure will continue to bring the beers in. Ask at your local bottle shop about them. Say you've listened to the podcast and you want to get access to the beers and we can import even more of them. And um, obviously, if you're living in the US or other parts of the world, hopefully you can get access to these great beers Phil, thank you for your time tonight, mate. It's uh, It's been a fantastic honour to get to talk to someone who has such a broad knowledge of the industry. And um, for everyone who is uh, still in the Zoom room, we're going to be able to now sit around and talk and enjoy the lost city of Zed together. And Phil can stay on the line with us and uh, not be recorded, or he can go about the rest of his evening. But thank you very much, Phil. Uh, you've been a great guest. Thank you. Thank you for having me.